When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope so. I hope so. Welcome to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark. And Pierce Turner and I begin this episode by talking about castles, and we end it discussing Patsy Cline and Roy Orbison. But in between, we do manage to touch on his career. He's been playing music since he was a kid in Ireland in the 60s. He couldn't help it. It was all around him. His mom had her own band, and the family had their own music store. And as a 14-year-old kid, he was in charge of inventory. He was even in a 60s Irish version of a boy band. But he wanted to start writing his own music, so he struck out on his own, which led him and a bandmate to fly to New York City with no plan, not even a place to stay when they landed. His first recordings in America almost ruined his career by attracting a bunch of weird Aleister Crowley fanatics. But he started writing music for modern dance and working with Philip Glass before starting his true solo career. His sound has shifted over the decades, including ditching the traditional band format and working only with string quartets for a while. His new album features David Bowie guitarist Jerry Leonard and rhythm section of Tony Shanahan from Patti Smith and Beck and Yuval Lyon from David Byrne. And Philip Glass returns. It's called Terrible Good because that's exactly what it is. Check it out in the usual places. Check out Pierce's website, pierceturner.com, for more information. Follow us at Performance ANX on social media. Rate and review if you please. You can show support with a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or picking up a shower curtain or two at performanceanx.threadless.com. So grab a pint and enjoy Pierce Turner on Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. All right. <laughs> That's a nice twist you got there at the end. <laughs> Hello, this is Pierce Turner. I'm, I'm promoting a new album I see called Terrible Good on Story Sound Records, which you can get anywhere you want. So uh, um, this is Performance Anxiety, and it's been very, very anxious for me to be on here with Mark, uh, but I've got through it somehow. And he says he's going to use the worst one of my introductions. So I'll say it again. I'm Pierce Turner, and I'm promoting a new album called Terrible Good, and this is Performance anxiety. Hi, Mark. I'm Pierce. Nice. Hey, can you hear? You can hear me okay, then, right? Yes. I can also hear the sirens, so I know you're in New York. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and 
<laughs> yeah. And I'm going to give a disclaimer because I have two dogs that might go ape shit during this whole thing. So I have one dog who might go ape shit during this whole thing. So <laughs> we'll see who does best. All right. I've got, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it anyway. We love dogs. All right. <laughs> I want to thank you. I've really enjoyed going back and listening to the music. Oh, good. What I want to do is to find out a little bit more about the new album. I, I kind of like to go back and find out about how you got into music in the first place. Uh, so I know you're Irish. You're born in Ireland. Yes. Wexford, right? Yeah, that's right. Beautiful. I, I mean, look up some photos. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yes. It's a seaside town. Well, uh, you know, it's a harbor town. Harbor town. I another seaside town we're surrounded by sea uh we're surrounded by uh beaches but the town is is it, the town itself is, is really a harbor town okay. mostly fishing boats oh okay I've, i'm looking right now at a photo of ferns castle ferns castle yes ferns yes ferns castle my god <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> I was just—I was pulling, looking up pictures of Wexford, and that's one of the first ones that popped up. So, yeah, yeah, okay. I can't even remember what that looks like, but I know where Ferns is. It's uh, uh, pretty, ba- you know, it's it's your basic castle. Yeah, that wouldn't be. That's not one of the more spectacular ones. No, it's it's. Uh, but Ferns uh, was once the capital of Ireland. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's like this little tiny place, you know, like a village yeah. um, that has a castle. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was the capital of Ireland once. Which oh, I don't really. I mean, long I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't alive. No. But, uh, <laughs> a couple hundred years ago. Right. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's what its distinction is. Oh, that's pretty wild. See, I'm learning stuff already. Yeah, you know the diocese. You know the Catholic Church. Is, what was a major force in Ireland it's not that much anymore um, and the diocese that I'm from is called the Diocese of Ferns even though Ferns is just this little village in the middle of nowhere that's oh wow that's hilarious <laughs> yeah and it's the seat of the bishop you know the bishop of, of Ferns you know is bishop bishop of all you know like yeah of a very large area. Wow. So I'm outside yeah. of D.C., so I'm in the uh, Arlington Diocese. But I live probably an hour and a, an hour and ten minutes away from Arlington. <laughs> so, yeah. So we're a big yeah. archdiocese. Yeah, these things don't make a lot of sense anymore. No. Really. <laughs> so I read that you grew up with music in the house yeah. and that your mom uh, was a musician herself and, and you had... Uh, music store in the in the family what was the first music that that really influenced you what was what were you listening to as a kid growing up you know uh, i i first of all there were several stages because uh, my mother was a musician and she even had her own band and um uh, she was a songwriter so and i was the last born i'm the youngest in my family so Everybody else had learned how to play the piano and passed, done, done exams and all that stuff and, and got tired of playing music and gave it up. And then I came around. By the time I came around, uh, my mother didn't bother teaching me anything. She just <laughs> said, 
you know, if he wants to do it, let him do it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And uh, so, but I was singing very young, you know, as a, as a, as a baby, I was singing songs. Oh, wow. So, um, it, so then, you know, really that's that phase of my life, the phase before I got into the rock music is an important phase too, you know, like, because I was listening to a lot of church music, you know, um, okay. you know, you know, Bach and Mozart and Beethoven and Faure and all these people right. had a big influence on me during that period, you know, and um, coupled with my mother's dance band music, which was kind of like some kind of a um, sort of a Bing Crosby kind of thing or something, you know, like, I mean, oh, I don't wow. know, you know. You know, <laughs> like uh, uh, leftovers from the Second World War kind of okay. thing. You know, yeah, you know, whatever that was. You know, um, I'll be seeing you and all those kind of songs. I don't know if you know them, but I don't really know them either. You know, yeah. like, uh, <laughs> that was you know, mom's uh, music. You know, the White Cliffs of Dover. You know, uh, yeah, you know, and all these songs. And then, so that was influenced me as well as the church, as the, the church music. You know? Okay. And then I was in choir, all the choirs. And then there's another thing that happens when you're a child in Ireland is that you are also kind of a, a required to sing Irish Irish folk songs. Uh, you know, as, as part, required is not the right word, but it's, just, it's part of the curriculum in school. Oh, you wow. know, that you learn, you, yeah, you learn Irish folk songs, Irish rebellion songs sometimes. And, oh, um, yeah, so uh, so that and those are those are very melodious. It's very melodious music. The music that that they uh, have. In fact, uh, one of the songs on my new album, where it should be, it, it has the, the chorus of it is influenced by an Irish old Irish folk song called "The Foggy Dew," and I I sang that in school. some you know uh, as you can see it's very melodious yeah you know, like it, it moves around a lot yeah it moves around a lot I love that so, song like my Yeah, so you know the melody I would think uh, was my strongest point for a long time uh, was the, the melodies uh, because as I said you know I had all that music come into me and I had no awareness much of the lyrics you know I wasn't thinking of but sometimes it was in Italian right it was in French you know sometimes and sometimes when it was in Irish and, you know, even though I was forced to learn Irish in school, I didn't care about it, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so you were constantly singing in other languages, hardly ever singing in English, you know. So then, so therefore, the thing I was influenced mostly by was the melody. Okay. So, for, you know, for a very long time, melody was my strongest suit. And then um, when I realized 
that lyrics were my weakest suit, I started to focus heavily on, on that. And one day they married together. The, the lyrics and the melody. It all came together. together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about, it's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performanceanxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. And then I came on to your, your podcast. Right. <laughs> and then, and thanks for coming on. <laughs> and yeah. what, what kind of music were you listening well I guess the best way to ask this I guess would be what kind of music shop was it that your mom was running I mean, were, you, were you getting a lot of modern records rock and oh, from yeah. well it, it was eclectic it was everything okay you know it, 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 it was a time when when radio was eclectic and everything was eclectic, you know, there was, there was no, yeah, there was none of this thing of, okay, we're doing only rap music. We're only doing, or we're only going to do blues or we're only going to do jazz or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that didn't exist. It was like radio was a mishmash. I would hear, you know, I don't know, the Rolling Stones, Mother's Little Helper right next to, Bing Crosby singing something, you know, on the radio. You know, it's like, it was all, you know, it was just absolutely chaotic like that. Wow. And um, so the record shop was like that too. We had every kind of record you could imagine. Once I turned like 15 or 14 or whatever, I guess 14, and I was really into bands like the Velvet Underground and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and yeah. Traffic and all these different kinds oh, of bands. Yeah. You know, then I started ordering them all the time at the shop. <laughs> that didn't mean that we could sell them or anything, right. but we had to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was left out full, full rain over that. Yeah. And so this beautiful, this, you know, this salesman would come around in his car and he'd have all the records in the boot of his car and, you know, the hatchback. And oh, he'd wow. pull up, open the back and he'd have a blanket over all of the, the vinyl um, <laughs> wow. to stop someone from robbing his car. Oh, <laughs> and, uh, man. He would take that blanket off and you could smell the vinyl. You could 
smell the records. You know? yeah. um, um, it was just like an orgasm. You know, it was an orgy. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, you know it's like, I mean, I was buying records just because I like to cover, you know, and stuff, you know. Oh, yeah. This is not, this is not good sort of salesman attitude <laughs> for a small town. Right. <laughs> But, but all of that had a big influence on me. So, you know, no matter what was in that record shop, I listened to it because I was in there all day long, uh, several times from, I used to work in it. So I went crazy, you know, <laughs> I was probably just listening to everything, you know, oh, everything. Man. It didn't matter. So therefore I'm eclectic as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I like that. <laughs> yeah. When did you start performing out in public, out in front of people? Very early, really, you know, because uh, I, um, first of all, I had this family I came from that was very musical, and my uncles and everyone, they were all musical, and uh, so my mother would have parties, uh, they would have parties in her house, and everybody had to sing, you know, you know, it was an Irish party, like where they went around, all right, we're starting with you, John, go around left to right, left to right. You know, or clockwise around the room, oh. and everybody has to do something. And I don't care if you're any good or not. I don't care if you can sing or not. Oh, you know, it's man. like you've got to do something. That... Everyone has to do something. I mean, you're literally shitting yourself sitting there waiting for your turn. <laughs> you know, oh my god, too. I mean, you know, at first I just couldn't handle it. I mean, and then after a while, I learned a party piece and uh, I picked, figured out what I was going to do. And um, you know, and then after a while, I realized. But they weren't very judgmental. They were very open to you making a hang, you know. Oh, so that's awesome. the first time, really, you know. And, you know, then I sang in the tops of the town, which was a, a thing that was held in, in the parish hall. It was a big event every year. Okay. And I sang Silent Night when I was about 12 and with a choir of about 50 people behind me. Oh, wow. And I think that that was the moment, you know, uh, the next moment came out. My sister had me sing at her wedding and I sang like Panis Angelicus and Ave Maria and oh. these kind of things. And that completely blew my mind. I mean, you know, I was, <laughs> I was the, just lost. I mean, and so I think that's where it began, you know, and then as soon as I turned 14, I started singing at, any kind of open mic situation, you oh, know, wow. uh, playing the piano. Yeah. And uh, of course I would do things that you weren't supposed to do, you know, like <laughs> a life in the day by the Beatles, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I read the news today, oh boy. And they're like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I wasn't trying to be awkward either. I was trying Try to entertain them. Right. <laughs> Were there a lot of places for you to play back at that point in, in Wexford? Know, yeah, yeah but, well, they had, you see, Ireland has that kind of musical tradition that, you know, like once a week there would be an open, I forget what they called it, there'd be a guy sitting uh, playing the guitar in a, in a place where they have a microphone and then, then invite people up to sing, you know. Okay. Uh, you, sometimes you would ask you would give them your name and, and they'd call you when your turn came. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was actually, you got to the point where you had to be brave enough to give them your name. <laughs> and then and then again, you're sitting there shooting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what have I done? Why did I do this? It's like, <laughs> 
Uh, and then I joined a band. I joined a band of you know this older man. He was but he was in his forties. He was the same age as my mother, actually. And, um, <laughs> he had he had a band, and what uh, was very hip. He was into like the charts and stuff. He was interested in what was the pop charts and all. And realized that he was too old really to do to to appeal to young kids. So he put like four or five young fellas like me together and formed the band, uh, a group, you know, yeah. I mean, it's a bit like a boy band in the year before it ever, before we ever had one. Oh, Uh, except there was no, there were no rules or regulations. We we were allowed to do whatever we liked. And he owned the equipment Ah. and he booked booked us. Okay. So that was my first, you know, that's how it began. Was that the Arrows? The what? Was that the arrows or was that before the arrows? No, no, no the arrows. Oh, you're, you're well informed, Mark. No, it was, <laughs> well, this is before the arrows. This okay. is like, uh, we were called the liars. Oh, <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, but with a, with a twist. It was spelled L-Y-R-E-S because uh, as in music musical liars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, but that was our personal joke that went right over everybody's <laughs> So, you know what? Was your family supportive of you wanting to pursue music? Oh, yeah. My mother loved it. Oh. She loved me doing that. My father just kept saying every now and then that it's a very hard life. But it didn't stop me or interfere with me. You know, he wanted me to do something like normal, of course. You know? Yeah. But my mother encouraged it. Wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, so it was. Yes, it was. So, what was? Tell me a little bit about the arrows. What was that then? It was. It was. It. Right. That's. This is an, another Irish phenomena. In Ireland, <laughs> we had. Yeah, we had a scene called the show band scene. Now, okay. it's not like a show. Not like an American show band, even though they were imitating an American show band, like in the kind of like Las Vegas sort of thing almost or something. I don't know. I really don't know. You have show bands in America? I don't know. I, you know when, I th- when I hear show band, I think of like the Partridge family. Yeah. All right. Well, it, it wasn't unlike that, you know. Um, it was commercial. It was, you know, the, but um, uh, uh, but there were different kinds. There was like a, a country and western show bands and there were, oh. there was pop show bands. Okay. Um, that was pretty much the two categories, actually. You know, um, <laughs> I'll stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but, but the pop show, the pop show bands could be quite experimental too. Oh, really? Uh, so it was kind of weird, like that. Yeah, you know, like I mean, they were they, they were into doing things. You know, they had a the lineup usually was uh, drums, bass, guitar, lead singer. Uh, and a brass section and, oh. and, a, and a keyboard player, right? It was always a brass section, you know, wow. a trumpet, saxophone, trombone, let's say, you know? Okay. So, so that really le- lent itself to soul music. So some of them really got involved with soul music. Ah. And, you know, of that. Okay. and that was kind of, the band I was in was sort of a cross between soul music and American harmony music, like the Beach Boys kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. So it was very, I mean, the standard was high, but 
uh, unfortunately, Ireland at the time was just like a country western haven. You know, Irish people, you know, you know, they're closer to Holdown than Maltown at that time. You know, I mean, and um, right. you know, so so really, uh, the band, the Arles, was formed by a big management company, and the idea was straight away we would we were going to be big time. That oh, was the idea. Okay. And, um, and, and we were pretty big right away. Like we had, like we were playing six nights a week. Wow. Week. Yeah. Um, but we were called a young show band because the first wave of show bands was re- was over almost, and that was the one that was really successful. They made loads of money. You know, they were very popular. But then, by the time the band I was in came around, social social habits had changed a bit. There was a war in Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland was a big haven for show bands. They uh, loved Southern show bands in North were huge in Northern Ireland. Oh wow, huge! I mean, like the Beatles, you know, like massive. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so like you know, um, the you know, people in Northern Ireland loved the Southern Ireland accent, and people in the Southern Ireland accent. Love the northern. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of loved each other, you know. We loved the sound of each other, and then this stupid fucking war came around, you know. And then, you know, uh, yeah. both the whole thing back, you know. Um, so I stayed in that band for three years because it was wow. very hard to get out of it, really, because it was I, I was getting paid a professional wage, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was earning more money than my father. You wow. Know? You know, it was real money, but it was really going nowhere. They weren't going to sing original music ever. You know, they weren't going to ever do it. They knew I wrote songs to, and they liked them. And a couple of songs I've written really were, you know, I know now still could have been hits. Oh, wow. And I think I'm very lucky they weren't. Oh, really? Well, because I might, I might you'd be, still, you'd be still be in a boy band. <laughs> you'd be in a boy yeah, band to this day. Yeah, it might be a wedding band now. <laughs> <laughs> so when when you decided to leave, is that when you were you got into uh, playing with Turner and Kerwin or the, the after it was the aftermath first, wasn't it? Yeah, no, okay. So you, you I, I was gonna mention Larry, but I wasn't sure you knew who he was. Yeah, at, uh, while I was in Dublin in that band, I had to move to Dublin, by the way, okay. from I believe Wexford, you know. When I was like 17, I had to move. Oh, man. Uh, so I moved to Dublin. And um, uh, when I moved to Dublin, Larry was already living there, uh, studying an accountancy. And he was living in a bed sitter. So I moved in with him. And we okay. shared the bed sitter. And um, that made it a lot more feasible for both of us. Um, uh, because I had to buy all this equipment. You know, the, the so equipment was so expensive in Ireland, like mm-hmm. the amplifiers and guitars. Well, yeah, I guess you, you had to import all that stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they took a lot of tax on that, but you're right. Importing it was a big part of the problem. Yeah. yeah. Like you know, if you play the organ, it was probably made in Germany. You right. Know? Um, yeah. If the guitar was made in America, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was the problem. Definitely. Uh, so Larry and I shared a bed sitter for the three years I was in this band. Um, he, he had a daytime job and I was like, you know, I sleep until two o'clock in the middle of the day, go down to, back into the middle of the city, get on, get in the van and off to a gig. That went on 
six days a week, you know, five, wow. five days sometimes, yeah. Christmas time, every, all the time, just nonstop. And uh, Larry and I were writing songs together during this whole period. And we bought ourselves a recording machine and um, we started writing songs for other people. We had a record label that was distributed by Polydor Records. Uh, okay. And we were causing a bit of a stir uh, in a kind of an underground way, I suppose, you know. And, um, uh, and, and then one day we decided we had to get out of there. We had to go somewhere else because they just, they just didn't want original music. And they, they, you know, they had this, there was this attitude that original songs are written in England, are written in America, not really written in Ireland. Oh, know? wow. You know, I mean, and, you know, they didn't think about it, like people like Van Morris. You know, we all, like Larry and I loved Van Morris. And, you know, we were, Astro Weeks was our favorite album. Oh, yeah. We were, you know, we were listening to all the, I mean, it's funny, even the band, the Arrows, you know, these Dublin guys who, you know, grew up in Dublin, which is a much hipper place than Wexford, you know. And, um, you know, I mean, I had to introduce them to things like Abbey Road. They had, you know, they never bought records or anything. They didn't really know oh these gosh. things. Weird. Yeah, so weird. Whereas, my, whereas I and I were totally in, in tune with all this stuff. So uh, I just gave them two weeks' notice, two weeks notice. And we got on the plane and went to New York. Wow. And we, had no, we had no idea why or how or what was going to happen when we got there. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> wow. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey, guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast. But... I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was Jailbait. Wait, Jailbird. The design I chose was Jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. So you just... in, fact, in fact, as we were flying over JFK, Larry said to me, do you know where we're going to stay? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, I don't know where we're going to stay. I thought you knew where we're going to stay. <laughs> Oh and my was, gosh! Yeah, that was the beginning of a a relationship built on supposition. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, of course, Larry was always a little bit one step ahead of me. He's a year older than me, I guess. But that's I think more than that to it. He's always a little bit ahead of me, uh, <laughs> you know, about thinking of stuff like this. And uh, he knew I had a phone number for a guy who had been the experimental lead singer with the arrows for a short period and he didn't pass the day he, he was sent back to new york and i had his phone number and uh, i thought i'd never call that phone really yeah. ever but like larry knew i had the number so that's <laughs> uh, i called him and he turned out to be such a great bloke and he put us up for the night and 
and introduces to it. And his wife was a, an agent for kind of Irish folk singers. Oh, wow. Like yeah. So she got us gigs in these Irish bars singing Irish folk songs. We didn't really know any. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was a start. You make up your own. Yeah, well, that's kind of all we do. <laughs> Who the hell's going to know the difference? I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just play the foggy do over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So I I saw some things that I'm really curious about. That I, when you're in New York, you started playing with uh, major thinkers, but I I saw something. You're listed as a member of a couple of things, and I wanted to find out if it's act, if it's accurate or not, because it sounds really interesting. There's a, there's a compilation that came out in uh, 1983 called The Pulse of New York. Yes. And it's got you listed as a member of the Heretics and Seven and Three, which are both on that compilation. Right. So that's <laughs> that's that was actually you then. You really dug up stuff here, Mark. I try. That was an album that uh, was put together by Neil Stalker. And Neil Stalker is actually one of the reasons we came to New York because Neil, Neil Stalker heard a single, I forgot to say, Larry and I put out a single in Ireland uh, on Poly, Polydor Records. Is that Neck and Neck? Uh, uh, and Neck and Neck was the back of it. Okay. Uh, the A-side the was called We Have No More Babies Left. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did see uh, that. Yeah. Right. And, we were, and, the, and, the, and we, the band was called Aftermath. We call ourselves Aftermath. I don't know. It's a, I think the record company gave us that name. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so like, we, came, well, we we got a letter from Neil Stalker, who was a, a guy working in New York who imported records. And he wrote, to say how much he loved it and especially loved neck and neck actually. Oh, um, wow. So he, we came when we came to New York, he was the first person we chased down, of course, and <laughs> of course. Uh, we became friends with him. And uh, he, um, he's the one who put that album together, the Pulse of New York. And, okay. Uh, on those, those, yeah. Those two tracks that are on there, what's the name of the band? Uh, uh, what, the, what? the Heretics is, the song is called chapter one and it's like yeah. nine minutes right. long. Yeah. And okay. Then... That's the track. What, what was going on there is Larry got into into a guy called Alistair Crowley. Have you ever heard of Alistair? Oh Crowley? yeah. Yeah. Right. So Larry got really into Alistair Crowley, and this could have been our downfall in a way because then we started attracting <laughs> attracting these Alistair Crowley fans, and oh. they were like a. A, a really straight. I mean, some of them, some of them, I love some of them. I mean, they were very. Some of them were very interesting people, but they were really unusual people. Like you know, oh, Orthodox, yeah. Orthodox. One guy was an Orthodox bishop. You know, I mean, oh. a Russian Orthodox bishop. You know, I mean, you know. So, <laughs> 
So like it was all this kind of and all these people that read science fiction, you know. Uh, it was a very mixed crowd of people, and they didn't necessarily drink. So we were playing in places where really we were getting paid to play in, and the money that the place made was from the drink, you know. So right. we had this follow that really didn't drink. Oh. So as I said, this was sort of our downfall in a way. And not only that, but they were sort of weirdos. Um, <laughs> uh, the general public then started to categorize us as demonic, you know. Yeah. Uh, even CBGBs. When we played CBGBs, Salman said we were demonic. Uh, Whoa. <laughs> imagine we were too demonic. For CBGBs. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> hilarious, really. Um, <laughs> but, but so that track is... Uh, is uh, uh, one of the guys that was coming to see us all the time had a lot of money and he wanted us to record to write music to a thing called the Book of the Law which was something that Alistair Crowley had come to him through his wife right and she brought <laughs> yes she's it was a little bit like the Ten Commandments, you know, or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they were, I don't know where they were. I mean, they were in Egypt or somewhere like that. And she she spoke the words of the book and he wrote them all down. And this thing called the Book of the Law. And it's like, basically, you know, uh, do what thy will yep. shall be the heart of the law. You know, yes. that's the idea. So we wrote music to the book. And um, because I thought it was really fun we could do whatever we liked you know we could write whatever music we wanted wow and we could go into the studio with our favorite musicians and get pissed out of our mind (laughs) smoke pot and just do whatever the fuck we like right and it was paid for uh we did it so we did it that's why i did it (laughs) oh man so that's what that is. Okay. That well, that makes a lot more sense. Now, there's a lot of bands on that. You're listed in two of them. Was it all you guys, or was it just a couple? Because you, no. you're shown as being part of the Heretics and Seven and Three, but there's also Tiny Tribe, DK Jones. Tiny Tribe, yeah. I produced Tiny Tribe. Okay. Uh, but that was really the best thing uh, although i did like the book of the law but the tiny tiny tribe or tribe were actually a really great little new wave band kind of here in town a three piece um from you know, queens i think and um they asked me what i produced them and they had the money to pay for the studio and um, we had a great studio in connecticut where we were recording with ron bagioki all the time a great engineer Okay. And I said, sure. So, you know, I, I arranged the music, we worked it out and everything like that and uh, went there and recorded it. But, you know, we were trying to do something like Jam or something like that. We, okay. You know, it, it was really kind of where my head was at at the time, musically, this kind of thing. So um, uh, we recorded it. And, I mean, I think it came out great. I love the way that thing sounds. Um, <laughs> but, you know... They were like a fickle bunch of kids from, you know, Queens. And uh, as soon as it over, they just, they gave it their, their, to their mo- one of their mothers gave it to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, "Oh, it's too weird" or something. And that was the end of that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, like, uh, Leave it to the lawyers. Uh, yeah, they right. screw everything but, up. Yeah, because at that point in, in, in New York and in the world, you had two ways of going. You had either you were either in, a, in the new wave camp. 
or you were in the kind of foreigner camp. You know, you know that that kind of like a big bombastic rock and roll kind of thing that was really dated and um, sort of um, you know dinosaur music right. was one camp, and the other camp was the Clash or whatever. You know, you know, you like that kind of music, and and then those two forms were as far away as it could possibly be from one another. So right. if you went to an AR man who was, you know, into the journey camp or whatever, I can't, journey's not the right band I'm thinking about. Foreigner, yeah, foreigner, you know, whatever, you know, that, yeah. that type of band, you know, poppy, but metallic poppy kind of thing. Harder stadium in, rock. Yeah, stadium rock, yes. If you went to that guy with Tiny Tribe, you know, you can just leave right away. You haven't got a hope. He will detest it. Like he, he won't even, he won't understand it for a second. You know, right? And the guy in the new wave camp will it, it will, would detest it if it was a foreigner type of thing that you think. Yeah. You know? uh, so they brought it to the wrong camp. <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> it wasn't my project, so I, I didn't care. I let it go. You know. Yeah. yeah. Well. Yeah. When did you start working with Philip Glass? How did you meet him? Uh, again, you know, it is you know when you're living downtown in Manhattan, you know, I live right, uh, you know, right downtown, I live in the village, the East Village. Okay. Um, your, uh, your uh, my girlfriend was a modern dancer. The the Bells of Hell, where Lion and I played, was filled with um, you know with people who were writing for the Village Voice and. Uh, you know, people who were writing movies even that were big hits, like oh, you wow. know, uh, like people who were working with Animal House and mo- movies like that. You know, people who worked oh, on, wow. uh, you know, they were all all those kind of people were hanging out in, in the bells of hell. You know, um, so it was so. Then I started writing music for modern dance because my girlfriend, literally, because she said, "What kind of do you have any music you can suggest to me?" And, I, and I, I, I tried to think of what I could suggest, and I didn't have a lot of ideas. I played her a couple of instrumental things I knew and stuff, but didn't have any. But when I saw what she was trying to do, I thought, you know, I'll just write it for you, you know, because <laughs> I don't know. I don't really know what. <laughs> I'll write it. And I realized that they were really up against it. They had no money. They could pay for music. You know, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do anything. So, yeah. you know, I had the ability, I had the equipment, I could record something. And I mean, it was like, they just, they couldn't believe it that I was giving them music for nothing to dance to, you know. And, oh, um, man. and then when I got into that world, then I started to be, to, to do quite well. I was asked to write for people like Twilight Thorpe and all these people. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't write for Twilight Thorpe, oh. but I was asked to. I didn't write for her, but I, I can't really tell you why I didn't. But it was because I was told it wouldn't be a pleasant experience. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I met Philip, uh, Philip Glass. And Philip, uh, I, and I had dinner in a friend's house. This is just purely because of the community, you know. Um, and there was about six of us there. And, of course, I knew who he was because he was very well known in, in the dance world. This is really the music they wanted to dance to. Okay. Because it has all the time signature changes all the time, you know. You yeah. know, that's what they want, you know. There lots of time signature changes. Okay. Uh, and then it's, it's hypnotic as well. So, you know, that made them, that was perfect for dance music. Oh, okay. And, um, uh, and so then, you know, 
I got to meet Philip. And then, coincidentally, Philip started dating a woman who lived downstairs for me here in this <laughs> building. Wow. I mean, that was that's just a coincidence. So I just ran into him in the hallway all the time. But I knew him now. Okay. You know, so I would talk to him. And, it's, and so one day I was talking to him, and he had just produced some band for BMG, um, uh, I can't remember their name now, and uh, I had heard it and thought it sounded good, and and they got a lot of press out of it and everything. And uh, the major thinkers had just been signed to Epic Records, so we were going to make an album. And so I said to him, you know, would you do a cello arrangement for one of the songs? And he said, yeah. Oh wow! So that's how I began working with him. That's awesome. And had you already decided to start working on solo material at this point, or was oh. it still for? Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh no, I had not. No. Uh, when I, I, I'm a kind of, a, I'm kind of a all in one. I'm a, I'm a one. I'm a one project kind of person. <laughs> you know, it's like I, I was dedicated to my work with Larry and okay. uh, whatever we were doing. We were a partnership, strong partnership, and uh, and we knew that we had to be very focused, you know, we couldn't be doing all, we already were dealing with lots of musicians that were playing with us that were in every, you know, the bass player was in six bands and drummers uh, in four bands, you know, that, because they, that was the way it was, you know, and they, that's the only way they could make, they weren't making a living. I was going to say making a living, they weren't making a living. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, whatever they were doing. Right. Um, <laughs> and Larry and I, had to be the centerpiece for the major thinkers. And we couldn't afford to be spread around. You know, I could write music for dancers, but, you know, we didn't, you know, no, our rock music kind of focus was just for each other's work together, you know, okay. as a unit. So how did the solo stuff come about then? Had started working on... Well, because we got dropped by Epic Records. We had the same manager as Suzanne. Uh, sorry, not Suzanne Vega, uh, Cindy Lauper. Uh, oh, then okay. management of Cindy Lauper. And uh, the manager started becoming her boyfriend. And when he became her boyfriend, and we were on the same label, he started really focusing all his attention on her. And it wasn't going well for her. Her first album, when it came out first, they wanted to move on. They, I was there, you know, after six months or, or four months. Record companies don't last long after about three or four months you know it's not a hit they want to move on to the next album yeah you know, something that's taken you three years to make you know and they yeah. want to move on yeah because they're, they're bored they get bored they just get fucking bored and uh, <laughs> i mean they were bored with michael jackson he sold 27 million albums we're on the same label as him and they were more amused by us <laughs> which made them really suspicious too i thought you know, this Come on, this guy just saw 27 million records and they are more amused by us. You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. So I was like, uh, and that's what happened with Cindy as well. So Cindy's album had been out for about four months and I was in the hallway with the man, with the head of the record company and everything. And they said, it's over. The record's over. Wow. This is the record with girls just want to have fun oh, and all the hits on. Yeah, she's so unusual. That time after time is, is on a lot. Yes, she's unusual. They said, it's over. It's not going to be it. And Cindy started crying. She was so upset. And oh. um, I think that that's when they changed their minds. And they started, 
because I spoke to the head of the record company. I said, this is very sad. I mean, I mean, the records just come out. You know, you haven't given them much chance, really. You know? He said, don't worry. It'll be in the charts in two weeks' time. I swear. Wow. <laughs> and it fucking was. And it didn't leave for a long time. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. There's an example how near that record came to failing. And then we were dropped. Wow. <laughs> so I'm not, you know, I, so I actually took two or three songs off that album and we recorded my solo album. Oh. Because okay. uh, we knew they were really good songs and I wasn't going to let it go. And the head of the record label gave me permission to do that because they, you do have to ask for permission. They had paid for the recording and then they owned the recording and then you can't record a song for a certain amount of years again or something. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but um, they were all right about it. But I really do think that is an important lesson for anybody who's a young, uh, anybody who's an artist. It doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're young. If you, and you're working on a record deal or, you, or whatever, just remember, you know, that that's how close it is to failure or success. It's just, it can be the tiniest twist, you know. For sure. So your debut comes out and, you know, you get a lot of great press by, you know, best debut issued by an independent record company. New Jersey white kid in his Sunday From then, you started putting out albums pretty regularly from, what, 87 until like 2004. And which, you know, the boy to be with. And I love, I love the, the, uh, the back-to-back sing and the boy to be with. Those, I I love the way those work together. That's just, that's fantastic. So this is the song for the year And I'm the boy to be with This is my favorite app You'll find it hard to resist Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, thank you. And I see, was that... That you ended up getting your version of Dirty Old Town on The Wire. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, that. That's from a live album, actually. I did a live album in between there uh, because I started working with string quartets. Yeah. So I, I just, you know, uh, I, one day it dawned on me that I'm sick of bands, you know, guitars, <laughs> drums, bass, you know, playing with 10 other bands at the same time, yeah. squeezing you in for a rehearsal heat. Here and rehearse with that, you know, two o'clock, you know, like you're calling rehearsal studios. It's just, ah, you know, it's just so much work just trying to raise the whole thing. And I thought, you know, if I had a string, I, I, I was thinking about Eleanor Rigby by the Beatles. Okay. I think it's perfectly possible to do for a, quartet, a string quartet to rock, you know. And um, if I had a string quartet, 
I could write all the parts for them and there wouldn't be much rehearsal involved. And if the violin player isn't available on um, one night, I, we can replace him with another violin player. <laughs> <laughs> um, they would have to have pickups, you know, was the rule. And um, so I, 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 that was my brainwave anyway. And that was a lot of work. Sounds like a great idea and everything, but it was a lot of work, you know, <laughs> finding the, the musicians. And um, I, I had this manager at the time that was pretty interesting, Logan. He also managed uh, Thelonious Monk. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and, and so when I said the idea to him, uh, he was a big shot lawyer as well. You know, he's a very unusual man, really. Uh, he said, well, I'll find the string quartet for you. I said, will you? <laughs> so, so he did. He fucking did. It's like, I don't know where he got the people from or how he got them, but like, I had this string quartet. Yeah, these really high quality musicians we got for me. And um, they, uh, so they all came into this room one day and I put the parts in front of them and I counted them in. <laughs> it was magic. It wow. just sounded fucking great. <laughs> so, uh, so then I played a lot of gigs like that. You know, a, a lot of gigs like that. And I do the uh, and the whole new following around that um, oh, wow. in Manhattan and uh, ultimately recorded a live album with that band and we did Dirty Old Town live with the quartet and a drum machine because yeah. <laughs> so I, I did use drum machine with the string quartet as well um, so yeah one day the phone rang and it, it was HBO you know and I think it was, I, I'm sure of this, because there's no, this, this is how stuff happens. I was playing, as I said, doing residencies here in Manhattan String Quartet. And I was doing it in places where you would never hear a string quartet, you know. I mean, all, all right, there were, um, you see, high quality bars is the best way I would describe it. Okay. Run by people who knew, who were, who were high quality themselves. You know, you know, they didn't want, they wanted quality, wanted something different. And I was doing every Sunday at five o'clock in this place called Hawk Fair. Um, that's, you know, it was pretty big. It held like 300 people and it had a kind of an organ loft. And we were up there with the string quartet. Uh, string quartet in, in the organ loft, and then it was a really long bar, really long. And I know that people like David Bowie used to come there just to hear us. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, and then I, and I would just, I, had a, I was totally wireless. So I would jump off the, the stairs and onto the counter and run up and down the counter and back up. And it was like, you know, so it was, you know. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. But I think that that, you know, that's like kind of in Soho, this place. Now, now you're dealing with a kind of a, a well-off kind of uh, clientele as well, a, an influential clientele. That's why someone like David Bowie might pop in there. No, this is in Soho. Right. And uh, I think one of them was a producer or something for HBO because I don't know how else it's going to happen. <laughs> you know? And I said to the guy, to the, to the person who called me, I said, like who's who else is are you listening to doing Dirty Old Town? And he goes, you know, she said, well, we're we're, we're you're you're also checking out the Pogues version and the Dubliners version. Now the Dubliners, the first version I ever heard, and it's superb. 
Yeah. And the Pogues did great first too. And they're both pretty well known. I mean, the Pogues were really well known. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking, oh, that's, that's the end of that conversation. Right. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be using my version. Right. They picked my version. Man. So again, you know, I'm thinking somebody up there, somebody in there who's influential had been coming to those Sunday gigs and thought that this is just so unique and and it was really unique, you know, yeah. it really was. Uh, um, but that's how that happens. You also had a bit of a gap between albums. So 2004, The Boy To Be With, and then songs for a very small orchestra didn't come out for another eight years. What was, was there a reason there's such a gap? All right, so what was the one you mentioned first, Boy To Be With? The Boy To Be With, that, that was 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was some, there was an EP called Action. Okay. Uh, A lot more depends upon them than you'd ever wonder. If they're not for us, they might be sad or just plain jealous. Who's your advisor? Who do you talk to when you feel you're stepping down? Will they say stop or send you even further? Who will you tell about our days? How will they act when you are plagued with doubts about our chances? And again, this was a string quartet record. This, this was actually the culmination of the string quartet. Because I really envisioned recording with the string quartet in a certain way um, that um, would, like, I, I wanted the, the drum machine string quartet kind of thing to sound like, as I said, like Elmer Rigby or something like that, you mm -hmm. know, but, but like, but maybe with, or, or a cross between that and New Order or something, you know, oh. that's kind of like what I'm thinking. And, uh, and I wanted to capture that. And, um, of course, it, it doesn't come out like that at all, but, you know, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Uh, and on action, if you if you if you check out action, you'll hear the nearest I came to achieving that. And it, and it shouldn't have been. It was an EP. It should never have happened because I I didn't really know that you can't do anything with an EP. You know, you're you're following. <laughs> don't buy it because they don't know what it is. It's not an album. It doesn't. It's not the new album. So they're not sure what the hell it is. You know. Oh, it's like man. A, you know, they're not going to pay the same price for it as an album, even though it's nearly as expensive as an album to right. make. Yeah. Um, so it kind of falls between the cracks, and it fell between the cracks. Uh, um, it, was, it was single of the week in Ireland, and it got all, all the people, you know, I mean, anyone who heard it loved it, but uh, it, it wasn't, you know, and it is really good, I believe. I think it's a great EP. But so that kind of like sort of cut, got. And then you didn't mention Three Minute World, but was Three Minute World before that? Uh, that was, that, yeah, that was before. Before Three, before a Boy to Be before With. Be, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, I don't know. You know there, there was other stuff, you know, and then it, there, there was a, a guy called Parthenon Huxley, who was a singer, songwriter, who was a fan of mine, who um, had been offered a production deal that uh, Epic Records they gave him seed money to pick an artist and make some demos with. Um, we recorded four songs together uh, with him and the string quartet again. And when the guy from the Epic Records heard it, he said, oh, no, we're not looking for another singer-songwriter. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
what do you think I am? Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's like, this is bullshit. But it's, it's, you know, that kind of stuff happened. You know, you know, there was lots of stuff like that happening. I think there might have been another record in there. Are you sure? To, I don't know. I can't, I'm not good at remembering this stuff. <laughs> All right. So what I'm showing here, uh, let's see. We got It's Only a Long Way Across, The Sky in the Ground, Now is Heaven, Manana in Manhattan Live, then there's Snakes and Ladders, Angelic Music, Three Minute World, and The Boy to Be With. And that's all from 87 to 2004. And then the next right. full album shows as Songs for a Very Small Orchestra in 2012. Right. Okay. And so I do see an E. An EP, Julie London. Right. There you go. Another fucking mistake. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, because again, that was another recording. As I said, I was doing these recording sessions and instead of singing and making an album, I was doing these recording sessions to experiment with different people to see what was going to come of it. And a lot of stuff got wasted, you know, like uh, I recorded Judy London, which I think was, I love Judy London. Uh, but uh, and that was a session with four, four songs were recorded there as well. So those, and those other, the other three songs that were in that session, I don't think ever saw the light of day. Uh, and, you know, I have them still recorded and they're good. You know? um, so I think that's what happened. I did this kind of experimental things where I would go and I record four songs here, four songs there. And then I ended up like the, none of that, that when it came to songs for a very small orchestra, uh, I had moved on to a new concept. And I, I think I cherry picked some of those tracks and put them on songs for a very small orchestra. Oh, okay. songs for very, yeah. I think that's what happened. I don't know what's on that album. Songs for a very small <laughs> well, Philip Glass <laughs> makes his, his triumphant return with Yogi with a Broken Heart. He lay on the ground where he usually found heaven and breath from the far off sea but not anymore with the wave of a text Yogi with a broken heart. All right, Yogi with a broken heart, like is is a is a song that I had demoed during that weird period. Really? Um, okay. Um, of songwriting songs that were, I think, maybe exploring a new direction for me. I was thinking, you know, there comes a time where you wake up one day and you realize. I've got to sort of find a new mojo, you know, something, you know, when I pick up the guitar and I've got a set of lyrics in front of me, I have to have something that is my mojo now, you know? And, right. uh, and so I feel, I feel like I was changing all the time during that period. Okay. Um, so then I wasn't happy about that. You know, I, I, just, I wasn't happy that I couldn't find what it was. But then when I listened to Yogi with a broken heart, I thought, well, you know, it's not, this is a good song. And if you just stop this bullshit about looking for your mojo, you part of that fucking song, you know, it's like, uh, and uh, um, so 
So that's what I did. And, you know, little things put you off, you know, like, you know, like you know, you're listening to songs. When you write songs, I had a, I always listened to my songs with a friend. And, you know, I think I wore him out, you know, I wore myself <laughs> out and I wore him uh, <laughs> listening to new songs over and over. And like, not over, not the same songs, but bringing him, every week I would meet him and I would bring him a new song that I recorded at home and all the time. And then after, you know, then after a while, you know, he started to, you know, some a couple of times he said he didn't like a song that turned out later to be a really good song, like Yogi with Broken Heart, for instance. He said he didn't like it. Oh wow! Uh, uh, and that's how volatile I was, or you know, I just vulnerable. Like I just said, like a, I thought, um, yeah, maybe he's right, but that's why I pushed it to one side and left it there for like. I don't know, maybe four years or something. Wow. I sat there. And then one day I happened across the cassette, the demo of it, and it was like listening to somebody else. You know, I you know, wow. I was so objective, you know, when I put it on, I was like, What? You guys, what the fuck's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> so then I recorded it and when I played it to that same friend, he said, I'm really glad that we recognized that was a good song. Oh. <laughs> Oh God! I didn't remind him. Yeah, no kidding. Because it's not his fault. It's just you know it was over. It was too much exposure, too much pressure. You know. <laughs> so, and you, you, know, had, and you, know, you have to make up your own mind. You yeah. Know, you too. yeah. Yeah. And you had Philip Glass play on that one as well. So were you in touch with him the whole time? Well, that's the thing is that I, I now how did that come about? I can't remember now exactly. Um. Um. It's it's a piano song, so I thought, yeah, you know, what if Philip was to play keyboard with me? Because everything he'd done with me before that was write string arrangements, and uh, he he never actually played on any of my recordings before. He never he didn't play. Okay, he had, he had written string arrangements and stuff, but he had never actually played. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. So I thought, you know. Um, you know, uh, this would be good to have him do that. So, uh, uh, so I called him up and I said, "Would you be interested in doing that?" And he said, "Yeah." So uh, we 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 got together and uh, he started playing the keyboard with me and taking little notes on what it was. And uh, I thought, you know, this is really interesting. You have Philip Glass actually kind of improvising and writing a part for himself to play with me, uh, um, <laughs> and he never does that. You know, he never yeah. really does that. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And then he had like a party. It was a party in Philip's house. It wasn't Philip's party because Philip doesn't like the party at all. But uh, <laughs> someone else had a party in his house. He got sucked into this one. I don't know how he got Oh, I know. <laughs> he, uh, he had a night at uh, uh, the city winery where he, he had four guests and he presented them. Uh, and he asked me to be one of them. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, and uh, one of them was his son, actually, Zachary. Um, and I think maybe that was part of his plan was to give Zachary a chance. You know, uh, Zach had written, a, was writing songs. Uh, and then he asked Suzanne Vega and Paddy Smith. And the, 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 so the four of us. And um, so then Philip had to play with me. You know, as that night. You know? Okay. So um, uh, we worked on a couple of songs. We worked on the song from my first album, How It Shone, um, a song where I played the piano, and he'd written string arrangements. 
uh, for live at, the, at the, that evening, he played the piano and I played the string parts on the, on the, on the keyboard uh, with a cellist playing live. Oh, and, nice. Uh, yeah, so it was really nice. And that's actually on YouTube, that recording. Uh, oh, I was cool. playing live at, at, the, at the City Winery. It's a nice recording. So uh, after that, we, we struck up kind of a, a companionship again. And that was when I said, oh, but I'm about playing keyboard. And then that crazy party was on his house. That, <laughs> you know, and uh, when, when the party was on, it was all these famous actors and actresses, you know, Tommy Soprano, uh, and all those people were there. I don't forget, what's his real name? Oh, God. Oh, James um, Gandolfini. Yeah, all those people were there. And, wow. uh, and Philip and I, had to perform a song so wh- how we got roped into it I don't know but Philip <laughs> performed the instrumental and then we sang that my, we sang Yo Yo with a Broken Heart I sang Yo Yo with a Broken Heart and did it before and uh, after that I thought you know that's it let's go record and we went out to his, his one of his keyboard players Nicky Rossi as a studio and um, we videotaped the recording of he and I playing it together and then I overdubbed the drums and strings on top of it. It's a gorgeous song. I love it. But... Funny thing, you know, we didn't have any click track or anything. So oh, really? You know, I had the drums. You know, when we were overdubbing stuff, uh, you know, it all had to be done organically. Oh, Everybody wow. had to just play with it. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah. And then, you know, it was on video, you know. So you know, that's something I had never had before, where someone actually videotaped the recording of the song, you know, uh, and that's also on YouTube. So, you had a couple albums after that, like "Love Can't Always Be Articulate," which I like because that kind of that statement kind of conforms to this podcast, I think. Yeah, but I do like I love your version of T Rex's "Life's a Gas," and I love Tonto Marigo. Tonto Marigo, Sacramento. Benny Ray Morchan Louis Anticum Documentum Novo Cedat Ritui Prestet Fide Suplon. You've got a new album coming out. Did you know Jerry Leonard before you started working on this album? How did you get meet up with him? It's just really weird. I mean, I I had met Jerry in uh, during that period back then when I was playing with the string quartet. Mm-hmm. Jerry was my sound man. Uh, he mixed my sound. Oh, okay. And uh, because he was working for this PA company that I knew the guy who owned PA. And uh, Jerry had just come from Ireland and uh, he, he couldn't get any work as a guitar player. And I didn't even know he played guitar. <laughs> and... Uh, so it's like so. In fact, I would I would love to have had him. I was looking for a guitar. Player oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> he, man! Yeah, he 
was mixing my sound and I got to know him then and uh, we got along well and uh, you know um, I, and then I didn't see him for a very long time and then one day uh, Cal Moore who owned the sound system said you know have you seen this footage of, of David Bowie playing live recently you know Jerry's playing guitar with him now Man, <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> I said, okay. So I looked at it. There was Jerry playing, you know, guitar with David Bowie. I mean, and he was doing all the fucking really great parts, you know, playing them. He was the man, you know. Man. I just couldn't believe it, you know. Um, he was Mick Ronson, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I, I thought, you know, Jesus, that's amazing. Um, so the next time I saw him, uh, was literally about three years ago, just before the pandemic, you know, um, we were doing a T-Rex uh, memorial concert. Um, this, oh, wow. These guys were running this concert. I think Mark Bowen was dead 30 years or something like that. Wow. And, um, and I was asked to sing, one of, uh, sing a song. And we, everybody, all kinds of people were on the bill. And Suzanne Vega was on the bill. And uh, Jerry now plays with Suzanne Vega. So he was backstage, and I know Suzanne, you know, very well. Back then, Suzanne brought me on Glastonbury and, wow. uh, you know, and all kinds of things. I know uh, she, she's come to see me play all the time. And um, awesome. so, so, yeah, it was really awesome because she was huge, you know. I mean, uh, uh, Luca was a massive hit, so people were kind of fascinated that she was standing in the front row, you know. I mean, like, <laughs> my <team. laughs> I think that the, the reviewers mentioned that more than they mentioned me. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, but uh, so I said to Jerry that night at the T-Rex concert, um, you know, would you like to work with me in the studio? You know, I'd love to work with you, you know. He said, sure, yeah. He said, okay, then. And then I left thinking like, yeah, well, how am I going to pull it off? I mean, you know, I make my records myself. There's no budget really. There's just fundraising from fans, and you know, and it's yeah. you know, it's like I get you know like enough money to to live for a few months. You know, right. and that's how it's. And then I got this miraculous contact from Dick Kinnett from Story Sound Records, and he said, "I want to talk to you." And uh, I, I, well, I was in Ireland at the time. I said, "I'll be back in January." He said, I have a label. And I was thinking, well, no, I knew Dick from the 80s. I knew him because he used to compose for dance, modern dancers too. Okay. Uh, and I always liked him. And I liked his music too. And I thought, well, you know, when he said he had a label, I thought, yeah, you got a label. You got a fuck, you got a label. John has a label. <laughs> Everybody's got a label. Right. <laughs> But I'm going to come up to see, I didn't say that, but I said, I'm going to go see him just because I liked him. So I went to see him. And uh, he said, I don't know what I could do for you, you know, but like, I know that I can give you, you know, a few, th you know, you know, <laughs> 30 or 40 grand to make a recording. And I can, you know, give you the money for, uh, pay for videos and I can hire a publicist and, uh, wow. in Ireland and a publicist in England, a publicist in America. And, I have international distribution, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, this is good. Yeah. I like this. This is a little bit better. It's a lot better so, than my yeah. label. Yeah. So I said to Dick, well, I have this idea. This guy, Jerry Leonard, you know, I'm thinking about, and he said, Jerry Leonard? 
I love Jerry Leonard. He said, well, how do you know Jerry Leonard? Well, he, he plays with Rufus Wainwright. I said, oh, does he? Yeah. He said, yeah, he He's his musical director. And, you know, Loudon Wainwright is on Story Sound Records, and, uh, and Dick is all embroiled in our whole Wainwright family. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so that's how we, I guess, he heard Jerry playing with Loudon Wainwright or with Rufus. And um, so... That was the beginning of, and then that was it. Really, we we were in the studio. I'd say about six weeks later, recording. So your approach to this album was completely different then. This was a very different process because, first of all, I wasn't the only one who had the ideas. Because I wanted to, uh, Jerry to co-produce with me, mm-hmm. and I did, wanted him to have a major say in the recording. I wanted the guitar to have a major part in the recording because I had never done that. Uh, before really where the guitar was a big focal point yeah. and, uh, and I've been doing so many keyboard albums and doing everything myself I was sick of myself you know I wanted someone else to do something you know it was that and, time uh, right like, like when you got rid of everything you decided to do string quartets now it was the same thing yeah right yes exactly this is the new what, what can you do next you know yeah. um, and um, so uh Jerry turned out to be a great person to work with him because, like, first of all, he, he's he's opinionated. And <laughs> lots of ideas. And, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't all smooth sailing. We had disagreements, but, you know, it was good disagreement. It was disagreement because we were trying to make it better. You know, right. that was, the, it was the, we weren't trying to fuck with each other's heads or anything like that. Right. And uh, so we started, you know, I would make demonstrations of the songs on my phone, just one, no, no, no overdubbing or anything, just straight up version of it and send it to Jerry. Jerry would listen to that. Then we'd go into the studio and we would rehearse it, three songs at a time. And okay. he'd add guitar parts as we were rehearsing it. And we'd cut, we'd, we'd cut and paste the songs, arrange them differently, mm-hmm. try different put them or whatever. And Jerry suggested this rhythm section, you know, Tony's, Shanahan on bass and Yuval Lyon on drums. Uh, Tony plays with Patti Smith and Yuval Lyon plays with David Byrne. And, um, That's awesome. And I said, yeah, they sound good, you know, why not? And, uh, and they were great. I mean, I loved working with them. And I'm still working with them. I mean, Tony is now, Tony and I are like, like brothers now and he's totally, you know, he, I mean, in fact, I'm doing a gig in New Jersey soon in the whole Balkan Street Fair when I have Tony playing drum bass and uh, uh, what's his name? Doherty, J.D. Doherty from Patti Smith's band playing drums. Oh, wow. Because Yuval can't do the gig. So now I've got Patti Smith's rhythm section. Oh, my God. That's that's fascinating. That's crazy. Uh, Yeah, I don't know where it's going, but it's (laughs) interesting. That is Uh, awesome. Yeah. So we, you know, we recorded the album um, uh, during the pandemic, I have to say, which is really an important part of this because I don't think those people would have been available in normal times. That's a good point. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah, even the studio might not have been available. You know, it's a very high-quality studio. It might have been too expensive. Yeah. In normal times. Oh, wow. Yeah. What is the meaning of Terrible Good, the album title? How did you come up with it's, that? It's actually a common phrase in Ireland. Uh, you know, just for us, terrible good now. You know, uh, uh, I mean, uh, we heard you last night and you were terrible good. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. So it's said I don't understand really. I'm not sure why, but a very long time ago, there was a book called Terrible Beauty, uh, and and that book was about Ireland and its troubles, and and you know, referring to Ireland as the terrible beauty because it was you know with the English English occupation and everything, yeah. Ireland was a very torn, sad place, you know. You know, really sad place. It was yeah. not, not unlike what's happening in Ukraine right now, except for you know, not as destructive as that because we didn't have any. We didn't even have an army, right? Like, and it was obviously a long time ago, so they didn't have the same kind of weaponry. But you know, it, every much, pretty much the same thing where the English took Ireland and broke it. You know, that yep. was the plan. That's what they did. So, terrible beauty was about that. Oh, and, okay. uh, that's a, can't remember. There's a really famous writer wrote that. And someone's going to be listening to this, and they're going to think that I'm so thick that I can't remember. <laughs> but, uh, I'll look it up real quick. Know, can you Google who wrote that? Tom I'm looking. Um, uh, Peter King, or let's see, there's a few of them actually. There's a book about uh, Ty Cobb think? called "A Terrible Beauty." I don't think that that's the one. No, this would have to be very old. Let's see. Someone stole the title of those other things, but all right, let's see here. It would be from the 1919, we're talking about 1910 or something like that, like 1920. It's hard very to famous. narrow this one down. Let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Someone's very famous. Anyway, anyway we'll, yeah. find we'll find it. We'll find it. But that's <laughs> where I, that's, you know, that's typical of the Irish thing, of the duality of Irish. Irish conversation, and, and you know, you know, when I grew up in Ireland, you know, if if something was what's the what's, what's the real deadly, if something was deadly, it was great, yeah. You know, okay. Yeah, okay. So, uh, and then you know, you have in in and in, in, uh, in wicked, it was wicked means really good, also. Um, yeah, that one's big in Boston yeah, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. in America, you. You know, and in, in the African American community, bad means good. So it's the twisting of language, and the Irish, because English was their second language, they constantly twisted it like that. <laughs> I think they did it on purpose. I think so. You know, and sometimes it was just because they were picking it up wrong, and then they liked picking it up wrong, and they realized that they were inventing something, which is true. You know, that's how language is invented. You yeah. Know? You, you, know, you go back and forth between Ireland and New, and New York a lot. How often are you traveling between the two? Well, I'm really living in Ireland now. Um, okay. I, I spend, so I come to New York, and I, but I have a whole world in New York, you know, like friends and fans and life and gigs and all that stuff. Yeah. So I'm, I spend, I'm spending several months in New York and the rest of the time in Ireland. Okay. When you're playing, is are the audiences different between New York and Ireland? They're not as different as you would think. Um, they have different songs that they like. Okay. Uh, but yeah, you know, uh, I don't know if that's. I'm not sure how that came about. But even you know, like if that's me picking songs that I think they're gonna like, <laughs> or you know, what I mean? it's yeah. so hard to know. You know? I'm trying to curate a set list for each audience. I write a, it's not so, yes. Well, I curate a set list for each situation. Okay. Is a better way of putting it. Okay. So, like, for instance, I'm doing this whole book in Street Fair, which is apparently a great event. But at the same time, this is a confusing 
confusing the shit out of me because <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, I don't know what I'm up against. You know, right. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, that's even interesting, isn't it? You know, just so, well, I would say, well, you're going to have to get up there and be strong and just do what you do, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, and uh, if they don't like it, uh, what are you going to have to make them like it? That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been enjoying the album a lot. So my favorite, I think, is Steven because I love I love the guitar and I love the blasts of feedback. I love the ending. It's that that's my favorite track on the album. But I also like Rocket Man. That that and Steven both have a Bowie feel to them to me. They have a what feel? A David Bowie feel. A Bowie feel. Yes. I can see that. Absolutely. Yes, I can I can see that. My mother and I never went out unless the sky was cloudy or the sun was blotted out to escape the Was a rocket man. He loved the world beyond the world, the sky beyond. I'll tell you something about those two songs. It's fascinating. It's first of all, Stephen was originally called Stephen's Preparing to Leave, and it is on Angelic Language, that album that you mentioned from way back yeah. then. Yeah. Okay. So it's that old. Wow. It's that old. And if you listen to that version of it, because it's only a demo, that album is really an album of demos. You, you can hear that it's almost like a folk song, but it has some experimental stuff going on as well. And that. But I don't think David Bowie would come to mind if you listen to that version. But I don't know who would come to mind either. But, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and then Rocket Man is the only song on the album that I didn't write. I didn't write Rock. Really? No, this is a really interesting story behind Rock on Man. Yeah, I know, because I was, uh, I've had that song from the, the 70s, and um, it, it, was, it was given to me by somebody, and uh, I, because they thought Larry and I should do it, and I just said, we didn't want to do it. So I just kept it, you know, just oh, kept wow. it here somewhere. I really like this song. It was recorded by a group called Pearls Before Swine. I remember yeah. them, yeah. Yeah, right. If you look, I'm finding out all this history now. I mean, because before, <laughs> because when I decided to record it, I thought, yeah, I should find out more about this fucking song. Right. You know? yeah. uh, and when I found out, it was written by Tom Rapp. Tom Rapp was the lead singer in Paris Before Swine. And uh, he recorded it with them. And I've heard their version. It's really strange. Yeah. And then he recorded, he recorded it again. And the version I had heard was his version. Um, uh, not the Birds Before Swine, and I liked it, you know. Um, but I kept it there. Uh, I just kept it to one side. I also thought one day, you know, and I made a demo of it that sounded really good. I thought, 
one day it'll fit. I don't know where. Maybe or maybe it'll never fit. I don't. Know. <laughs> yeah. And it was, and my friend who I played songs to loved it, you know. And uh, so I kept doing. But when when uh, Jerry and I made the album, I think you know uh, he said to me, "What what kind of album do you have in mind?" I said, "You know, oh, I don't know. I want you to, well, it to be like a Bowie album, you know. I don't know, you know, something like that, you know, like, you know a really good Bowie album. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a pretty wide open field. Yeah, you know, that could be, yeah." And he said, "Which one? Which Bowie?" Uh, I said, "Oh." Uh, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's so hard to say, you know. But you know, I said yeah. Paul make Ronson one, you know, just you know, the, at least that's a good few different ones. I loved all of it, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, uh, I, I didn't really, but uh, so then I think we superimposed. So I gave him the first song I played to Jerry was Rocket Man. That demo, you see, I had that demo. It was a really good demo, and I think I was nervous about playing him my own songs. And this is my way of getting around it or something. Okay. So, yeah, so I played him this and he loved it. And he said, you know, it sounds like one of your songs. He couldn't believe I didn't write it, you know. Uh, wow. And he couldn't believe how old it was. And, I said, <laughs> I, and it, was written, it was written before Elton John's Rocket Man. Wow. It says, if you look up the Wikipedia, Wikipedia for that song, and it says there that... Uh, the guy who wrote the lyrics for Elton John's songs, Bernie, Bernie Taupin, Taupin, was influenced by this Rocket Man. Wow. When he wrote that Rocket Man. Oh, my. That? That's crazy. It's been really <laughs> wild. I mean, what a writer Tom Rapp was to write a song so far ahead of its time. I mean, in my opinion, that's what I think anyway. It's a, oh, yeah. yeah. It's a timeless song. You know, it's like it's it. But anyway, so I think we made, I think that, because of that, then Jerry and I made those songs with David Bowie sounding songs. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, I, I totally was up for, you know. Oh, God, yeah. I also really enjoyed more because it, it sounds like you're having a blast singing that one. There must be more that we can't feel than adequate. What about Sop Sop? What's all now about Sop Sop? Must everything be sweet and white? What about the stars in the back of the night? There's a whole lake of stuff losing ground. We're starting to drown and toughen. What about people crazy? Yeah, yes, yes. I think I hear a couple yeah. chuckles in, in the lyrics there. Uh, yeah, well, that was a very po- that's a very popular live song, so I... Uh... Uh, I've been doing that one live for a little while as well, and I just um, uh, was uh, people sing the chorus with me when I do it. Oh, nice! Uh, and um, we we recorded by the way that Joe's pop performance we just did to launch the album, and we have video of the whole thing. And it's high high fidelity, so we'll be uh, we we're working on putting it up there in different sections. And stuff. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. So. We, so that would be there for people to hear. Um, yeah, more is, and, and anyhow, the reason why I say that is the audience really sings in, in the performance. Oh, cool. That and, and Set A Few Things Up both sound like, like super fun tracks. Yeah, yeah, Set A Few Things Up really takes off when you play it live. It's like, it's just like, you know, infectious oh man i'd love to see you hopefully i get a chance to uh, either get up to new york or i don't know maybe one day you can come down to dc and 
I can catch a show. Where are you, by the way, Mark? I'm in Winchester, Virginia, so I'm about 75 miles due west of D.C. Wow. So, okay. home of Patsy Cline. Well, Patsy Cline was from where you where you are? Yeah, she's from Winchester. Oh, I love Patsy Cline. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, she's, she's like, buried right down the road. Well, you, I know it's kind of weird. It doesn't make any sense, but you know, this is what happens to people, I guess. First of all, you know, I, I what, but, but on Love Never Fails, the song Love Never Fails, mm-hmm. I kept thinking, I want to sing this like Nasty Client. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's, that's crazy coincidental. You know, where's the time? going through my head if I could just be as genuine as Patsy Klein when I sing this song wow I loved uh, yeah she was in the record shop I need to tell you and I loved uh, yeah it's just Patsy oh she's from there huh yeah wow. yeah she used to one of her first job was working at the drugstore it still exists it's still a they haven't torn the building down or anything but uh, yeah she's she's all over the place here they got all kinds of stuff for her uh, oh, a me- oh yeah, magic. I, that whole thing had a, that whole thing had a big influence on me. That Americana thing, where the Roy Orbison thing, Patsy Cline. I think of Patsy Cline and Roy Orbison as similar in some very strange way. You know, oh, uh, they had such clear voices. They just their voices yeah. are like listening to a. a bell ring out or something there's just something yeah. a quality to their yeah. voice yeah and, and also then the way they they use strings uh, so that the, it, it wasn't it wasn't country and western you know i mean it's not country and western right it, it you know it, 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 it's maybe that that's what i think anyway it's something else you know it's, it's she's like a diva i guess oh uh, yeah I love her, and she's she's all over the place here. So you ever get a chance, come to Winchester. I'll show well, you around. Well, you've just given me an education. I thought that I, I assumed she was from Nashville or somewhere. No, no, she's. she's... Well, I thought my Orbison was from Nashville too. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's from, from some funny place as well. Oh. Someone pointed out recently that it's like a you know that like Woody Holly is from the same place as Roy Orbison. I was told Lubbock, Texas. Yes, Texas, somewhere in Texas. Yeah, no, That's I know. Like, let's see, I, I I know Buddy Holly was from Lubbock, I believe, and then uh, see, it's the same area. Did you, what's the name you just said? Buddy Holly is from Lubbock, and uh, oh, yeah. Roy Orbison's from Vernon, Texas, which is probably pretty close to each other. Yeah, that area though, yeah. it's got kind of a German name. Is a German name on the area or something? Uh that's why, you know, okay. But they're from the similar place. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure it's the same, I suppose, maybe for you, it's the same when you think of English music. But when you're in a little t- shop in a little town in the southeast of Ireland and you're listening to people from Texas and Nashville and or 
New, New Jersey or anywhere, <laughs> Long Island. These places are like, you know, you can't just get your head around. I mean, the imagery you have in our California, you know, is like, I mean, you just think that this is like someplace you will never, ever get to in your entire life. It's oh, like wow. this magical place where this music comes from that's like, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> it, that's what I think about when I more of like when I think of food I think of Europe I think of all these amazing yeah. places that uh, they make this incredible food and I'm never going to get there <laughs> I don't know I, I've based a lot of my life around food, so, yeah, food. You're, pretty, you're not you're not fat for a guy who loves food no I'm I'm getting I'm, I'm alright oh no, that's not that's, yeah. that's not too bad no it's not bad I've cut but back you know, on the beer I love food as well. It's, it's the beer that actually does does the fat. Yeah, the that beer. and the, my my bourbon. I've had to cut back on that a little bit. Oh yeah, lose a little bit of weight. <laughs> yeah, but I love food as well. Uh, I don't know any people who don't look food, like food. That's very suspicious. That's like saying you don't like music. <laughs> yeah, I don't trust those people. Yeah, but. Where can people find the album? How can they buy it? And how can they follow you to find out where you're playing, whether it's Ireland or New York or New Jersey? Well, first of all, my website is just called www.pierceturner.com. Uh, it's available really on everywhere. Amazon, you know, I mean, it has international distribution. Any of the major, uh, you know, you should be able to go online and buy the album easily. Uh, you can definitely stream it easily, and uh, I, if you're, as far as gigs are concerned, I'm sorry, I don't really, I'm not interested in touring anymore. <laughs> I can't be bothered. Right. Uh, if, if someone gives me a really good gig and they want me to come somewhere, I'll do it. You know, but it has to be a really good gig. So really, you have to catch me either in the New York area or in Ireland, or or possibly in England. And then, as I said, I'm doing the Hoboken Street Fair on May 1st. And I'm playing here in the East Vivian's in a place called Theater 80 uh, on uh, May 14th. Okay. Uh, Excellent. For that rhythm section, I've got, after that, yeah. And as I said, I've got Patty Smith's rhythm section. And the guitarist played with Ian Hunter from Up the Hoople. It's like, you know, Jerry's not available for that gig. And you is not available, so I have these guys. <laughs> so, oh. so it's good, which I'm so grateful for these people who helping me out like this. Uh, um, I don't know what what other question you asked me, really, but uh, is there know, any it, social it, media presence? Yeah, just um, you know, just Google my name. It's all okay. The, yeah, yeah, Wikipedia and everything, you know, like. But uh, yeah, you just Google my name, you find out everything you want to know. Oh, excellent. Well, this has been a blast. I've had so much fun speaking with you. I've just, it's, it's so many great stories. And I really thank you for spending so much time with me. It was lovely, Mark. Lovely talking to you. And it's like lovely hanging out with somebody, you know, in another part of the world or another part of America. Because I don't get out there. And, and I used to tour. I toured America a lot. And I played in colleges when I came here first. And oh. I met a lot of people like you, you know, and I, that I, I miss meeting people like you, you know. Oh, I appreciate that. It's a great talk to you.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.